0: Uh, We're in week seven of Saved and Sent, and the sermon title today is Assurance. We're going to be looking at assurance this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to be in verse 22 and 23 of chapter 5, and then we're going to go all the way through verse 13 of chapter 6. So just a question for you. Have you ever met someone, and and they kind of appear to be one thing, but as you get closer to them and you get to know them more, they turn out to be something altogether different, and you're wondering like, was I crazy? Are they crazy? What's going on here? Uh, I'm sure you've all had situations like that actually uh, that's kind of the circumstances under which uh, my wife and I met so I'm gonna I'm gonna totally put myself on blast this morning about uh, just how kind of quirky I guess we'll call it quirky that's the kind way to call myself uh, a little bit weird so my wife and I got to know each other we were in the same friend groups at the same church we we kind of were around each other and over time we began to discover like whoa I, I actually like the way you look and I like the things you think and the things you talk about and so at one point my wife comes up to me and she, she's just straight with me. And she's like, I, I think you're interested in me. I'm interested in you. What, what are we going to do about this thing? And at that point, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going on a date with this girl. And so we did. And and at that point, we had kind of uh, decided, both of us independently, like we're we're just over the dating game. We wanted to be super intentional and super direct with this thing. And so we were. We had this date. We had some phone calls. We had a second date, some more phone calls. And and things were progressing. And it was pretty clear, like, wow, there there could be some real teeth to this thing. And so uh, I decided for our third date, I would hide behind being in college and being broke and say, why don't we? We just go to the park and have a picnic and, and just play around a little bit at the park. And she agreed to that. All the while, I kind of had this plan in the back of my mind that, that I'm, I'm going to share it and it's going to sound crazy. So, so just uh, take this with some grace. I, I show up to this park and I've got a bag. And in that bag, there's some basketballs, some footballs, some cones, uh, you know, a soccer ball. And, and, and in my mind, what I'm about to do is put this woman through a rigorous test to see if she's got hand-eye coordination. Okay, so I've got a little bit of height on my side of the family. Her dad's six foot four. Her mom was six feet tall. So she's got a lot of height on her side of the family. But listen, I'm a pastor. I can't pay for my kids to go to college. So if they're going to make it, they better get a scholarship. So I wanted to know, is there some talent in there to to pair with this height? And again, I know how crazy this sounds. So we, we have this meal and then I'm like, why don't we go play a game of horse? So we're playing horse and I'm watching how's her form? Let's throw the football around. Is there a, sp- a tight spiral on this football? Let's kick the soccer ball. Man, she had some power in that right leg. And, and she began to slowly catch on to this thing when I set some cones up. And I put her, I'm embarrassed to om- admit this, put her through some shuttle drills, some print sprinting drills, and, uh, and a 100-meter dra- dash. And uh, she discovered that I had a stopwatch in my pocket timing her On these runs. And so she's sitting here, she's reeling like, who is this guy? And uh, and, and she's like, I thought he was one thing. I thought he was presenting himself as this and serious and fun. And he he wants all these things in life. And he's sitting here subtly testing me to see how athletic I am. I don't know if I can be with this guy. Praise God, my wife's standards were low enough to stay with a guy like me because we are happily married many years later. Now, uh, why this story? Well, well, my wife at one point thought, man, this is progressing really well. This just going to kind of be a, a, a clean shot towards marriage, and it's going to be really, really good. And then this bomb gets dropped, and she's kind of reeling a little bit and questioning what is going on here. And that's where we find ourselves in the story of Exodus. You see, the people of God, they, they begin this book in, in slavery and in pain and, and in torment. And, and then it looks like things are looking up for them. Moses is born. He's going to be this deliverer, but he fails and he runs and he ends up in a desert for 40 years but then God calls him and Moses begins waving the white flag and saying i've got all these excuses god you've got the wrong guy i can't do this and so things are delayed for many more years but eventually Moses finally submits in glad obedience to god and at that point the power of god begins to flow through Moses and through the people of god and so chapter 4 is kind of this high point in exodus where everything is going according to plan but after as we looked at last week, everything came crashing down around the people of God and they were deeply discouraged. Their suffering increased, their persecution increased, them being marginalized increased, and they are at that point reeling. But what I want you to notice right off the bat is Moses' response. So now look with me to Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses begins to question God right off the bat in the midst of his suffering. Isn't that true of all of us? We find ourselves in dark circumstances or discouraging circumstances, and we begin to question God. Moses questions God's goodness. Why have you done evil to this people? He questions God's wisdom. Why did you ever send me? He questions God's power. You have not delivered us. But the key point to these verses is that Moses turned to the Lord. Many of us, when we find ourselves in hard circumstances, we don't run to the Lord. We run from the Lord. We begin gossiping about God to other people. We begin having doubtful conversations with ourselves in our own heads, and we refuse to bring our pain and bring our darkness to the Lord. So there's great beauty in Moses's response here. Even in the questioning, he's at least directing the questions to the right source. So he turns to the Lord, and that's what we must do, friends. If we ourselves discombobulated, concerned, discouraged. We must run to the Lord. And then what you'll notice is that God will then begin to speak back to Moses. And over the next 13 verses, he will just constantly bring his words of assurance, his promises of faithfulness, his presence into the situation. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. You see, God didn't answer Moses' questions directly. Moses says to God, why did you send me? God didn't answer that question. He says, God, why is evil being done to this people? God doesn't answer that question, but rather what God does is says, I have Pharaoh right where I want him. I have Pharaoh thinking he's the omnipotent ruler of the universe and he's about to meet the creator. He's about to meet the all powerful one. Watch me now work my power through your weakness. God begins with saying assurance is not about looking to yourself or getting your questions answered, Moses. Assurance is first about you looking to me, seeing my might, my beauty, my power on display. Moses, look at me and watch what I'm about to do. So as I use this word assurance, as we're going to break this down here in a minute, I just want you to keep this phrase in your mind. Assurance is believing and resting in the fact that we belong to God. That we indeed, as God's people, belong to him. And the Israelites here in the Old Testament belong to God. And we must believe that and we must rest in that. And that nothing and no one can change the fact that we are God's and he is And we're going to see God remind Israel and remind Moses of that in two primary ways. In verses 2 through 5, he's going to root his assurance in his past faithfulness. And then in verses 6 through 8, he's going to root his assurance in his future promises. So first, let's look at uh, the past behavior of the Lord. Our assurance is rooted in God's past faithfulness. Our assurance is rooted in God's past faithfulness. All right. I've shared this about myself before but but I, I one of the things I love doing is I just love looking at people and analyzing their behavior their reactions their words when certain circumstances or situations come their way, how are they going to respond and really over the past three months with, with the whole shutdown and everything going on around us it's been a really good time to just kind of take a step back, take it all in see how are, how's my family responding to this how's my friends responding to this how's my church responding to this how am I responding to this and beginning to study their behavior. Like none of us was ready for what we've been facing these last three months. So we've seen reactions across the spectrum. We've seen things from deep anxiety to, you know, getting lost in conspiracy theories to absolute rebellion, all the way over to peace in the midst of some really hard circumstances. And so what I know now is that for some of those people is say they, they responded in really deep peace and rest, even in the midst of turmoil, what I know is if something like this comes their way again, they're probably going to react similarly. The principle that we all know is that the best indicator of future behavior is past behavior. How you've acted previously is probably how you're going to act in the future. Just another silly little example because I haven't dogged on the Dodgers in a while, so I'm going to do it now. Past behavior is an indicator of future behavior. Here's probably what's going to happen for the Dodgers when the next season begins, whenever that might be. They're going to have the deepest lineup in the league. They're going to have the deepest rotation in the league. They're going to get off to a hot start. They're going to hit a lot of home runs. They're going to finish with over 100 wins. They're going to win their division by eight, ten games. They're going to blow through the first couple of rounds of the playoffs. And then in the NLCS or the World Series, some wildcard upstart is going to trip them up because Clayton Kershaw is going to choke. Dave Roberts is going to overmanage and they're going to have a ton of, you know, egotistical problems in their locker room and they're just going to implode from the inside. Not because the team beat them, but because the Dodgers beat themselves. Past behavior is an indicator of future behavior. Now, when we're speaking of the Lord, we are told he is unchanging, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that God's past faithfulness will show us his faithfulness in the presence, present and into The future, turn your attention to Exodus 6, verses 2 through 5. Read with me. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now notice with me the past tense throughout this. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of... Of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. The Lord is beginning to reassure Moses by pointing to his past faithfulness, by saying, Moses, I will be faithful to you now, and you can be assured of that by looking to my history, looking to the past for the people of God. He begins to again rehearse that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's saying, I made a covenant with those people and I have kept my word and kept my covenant. When I told Abraham he was gonna have a son, even though it was a long wait, I delivered on my promise and I gave him Isaac. When Isaac was sojourning and he was in a foreign land and I promised him a wife and a son, even though the delay was there, I was still faithful and I gave him Rebekah and I gave him Jacob and and Jacob, I was even faithful to him when he was kind of a trickster and he stole Esau's birth birthright, and eventually lost his favorite son, Joseph, to Egypt. I was still faithful to him. I didn't abandon him. I didn't leave him behind. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. I am your God. And God even goes on to say, but by my name, I did not make myself known to them. In other words, these people knew me as God, but they didn't know me as the great I am. I didn't reveal myself to them in the way I have to you, Moses, so you have all the more reason for assurance and confidence. He is saying, I am the same faithful God. The key here is this concept of covenant. He said, I established a covenant with my people. As simply as I can say it, a covenant is God's unbreakable promise of salvation to his people. An unbreakable promise of salvation to his people because God's word is true and God's word is final. Psalm 105.8 will tell us, he remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. He is a generational God. He is a covenantal God and he will not go back on his word. He will not fail his word and he will not let his people down. God made a covenant with all the peoples of Israel dating back to Genesis 12 with Abraham, down on through to Moses. And he intends to keep that promise to the people of God. Moses needed to be reminded of God's past faithfulness to grow in his confidence of God's current faithfulness. And we too, as the people of God in circumstances like we find ourselves in now, must remind ourselves of God's covenantal faithfulness, his past faithfulness, to have assurance of his current faithfulness. And we need not look farther other than our Messiah, Jesus Christ. Listen to this quote by Phil Reichen with me. God remembered his covenant in Jesus Christ. He remembered it on Christmas morning when Jesus was born to keep the covenant we failed to keep. He remembered it on Good Friday when Jesus Christ died on the cross, suffering all the covenant curses against our sins so we can be forgiven. And he remembered it on Easter Sunday when he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's from Hebrews thirteen twenty. Now Jesus stands at the right hand of his Father in heaven, ready to help when trouble comes. When we commit a sin, Jesus intercedes for us, reminding his Father that all our sins have been washed away through the blood of his covenant. When things go from bad to worse, when in our suffering we are discouraged, Jesus sends us the comfort and peace of his Spirit, the promised blessing of the covenant. God never, God never goes back on a promise. God always keeps his word. So if believing and resting in the fact that we belong to God is what assurance is, what we need to do to be assured now is rest in the fact that Jesus purchased us and made us people of God, and that is where we belong. You know, over the last three months, my wife and I have struggled a lot with discouragement and and doubt and and pain. And and even just this past week was an incredibly difficult week for us. And, And in that moment, we began asking like, God, where are you? Are you faithful? What's going on here? And one of the things that we did before we planted this church, back in the summer of 2017, so three years ago, um, before we said yes to this, before we knew where, before we knew how, uh, we just decided, let's submit ourselves to, to kind of prayer and fasting through the scriptures together, and let's keep a journal through it. And so we decided, let's just study the book of Acts. Let's skip a meal each day and just read a passage from Acts, pray about it, journal about it, and discuss it. And, and so, you know, I do what I did, and I broke Acts down into 58 parts. So it took us almost 60 days to get through this thing. And, uh, and, and we, kept, we both kept journals separate from each other about this. And in these last three months, as I've really struggled, that journal hasn't left my backpack. I pull it out so often and I go back and I see, what did I ask God for? What did I pray for? What was I hoping to see? And I begin to grow in my confidence that God is faithful to me now because I've seen his faithfulness over the past three years. Some of the things I've asked God for, he's given it to us to a T. Some of the things I've asked God for, he has so far surpassed anything we've asked for. It's just blown me away by his grace and his mercy. Some of the things that I asked for, God graciously said, No, that's not good for you, that's not right for you. And if you knew all that I knew, you would know why I'm saying no to this. And now looking back, I'm able to see that's why God told me no, because he was being faithful to me, he was being faithful to his church and he was being faithful to his own glory. And so I grew and I grow and I continue to try to grow in understanding God is faithful to me, has not abandoned me or left me to my own devices, but rather he has shown for three years steady now and really 30 years steady now, I am faithful to Travis Cunningham because I made a covenant with him and I will not break that church how can you rehearse your salvation how can you see God's faithfulness to you to protect you and provide for you and give you community and relationships and friendships over the years and grow that that same God that was faithful back then is the God that's faithful to you now so our assurance and Israel's assurance is rooted in God's past faithfulness number two Our assurance is also rooted in God's promises, God's future promises. So if the past indicates the future, what are the future promises of God to the people of Israel here in Exodus 6? I'm gonna read verses six through eight, and I want you to note all the times the phrase, I will, is used. Exodus 6, verses six through eight. This is God still speaking to Moses. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, Because I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. The Lord speaks to Moses, seven reassuring, I will statements, promises for Moses to cling to in his wandering and in his wondering. And these are for us today. These are seven I will statements in our wandering and in our wondering, things we can grip tightly to knowing these are the promises of God to us in the gospel. We actually get a four-part view of the gospel in these seven statements. So I want to hit all four. Parts of that. The first promise given to Moses is this promise of liberation or this promise of deliverance. Look back at verse six with me. Safe, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and, and here it is: I will bring you out. I will liberate you from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. Liberation is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel that we have throughout the scripture. Liberation is about release from captivity. The Israelites are under this cruel regime. They're in slavery and they can do nothing to free themselves. The shackles are so tight on their wrists they needed an external mediator to come in with the key and say you're unlocked, you're free, you're delivered, walk away. And Moses was the one that was called on God's behalf to be this mediator. And we'll see that throughout the book of Exodus. Now, listen, I'm a, I'm a band of brothers junkie. I love that series. I've read the book a few times. I've watched the Tom Hanks series, you know, four or five times. And, and Katie and I even just recently watched it again. And, and one of the more moving scenes in, in the, the 10 episodes, for me at least, is towards the end of the series, you know, the, the 506 Airborne has, has dropped into enemy territory and they've been fighting on the front lines for a long period of time. They've been through terrible winters. They've been been rained down on by grenades and, and tank fire and they're just exhausted and weary. But the, 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 the people continue or the American soldiers continue to press and they continue to press and they continue to press and they begin overtaking the German army army. And eventually Hitler kills himself and, and, and then German soldiers begin to abandon their posts and begin to just kind of walk back home in shame and in defeat. And all the while, throughout the war, the American soldiers are hearing about these things called concentration camps. There's imagery of them, there's a myth about them, but they hadn't seen them yet, and it wasn't verified. But but towards the end of the series, the E company from the 506 Airborne eventually, in this thick wooded forest area, stumbles upon a concentration camp. They they smell the stench of decaying humans inside a a concentration camp. And and they walk up to the gates, and what they see just blows them away, the torture the, the the inhumane, cruel treatment of the Jews by the Germans and, the, and they don't know what to do. So they run back to their commanders and eventually the leaders of the 506 Airborne get there and they cut the chains, they open the gates and they begin walking through this concentration camp. But you see, the Jews were so beat down And they were so abused, they didn't know, are these people here to free us? Are they here to help us? Are they on our side? And eventually, as they discover, these are the Americans and they're here to help us. What's their response? They begin dancing and singing and weeping. They begin embracing and kissing these American soldiers because they know their mediator has come and has liberated them and they are free and they're not there to murder them and to beat them. And this is what what the Bible means by liberation. This is what's gonna happen for the Israelites in Exodus 15. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has freed us from our shackles. He has freed us from our imprisonment, The, 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 the prominent word in the new testament for liberation is the word freedom whom the son sets free is free indeed You will know the truth, you will know the gospel, and the gospel will set you free where the spirit of the Lord is dwelling within us. There is freedom. We are liberated from our sin. We are liberated from Satan. We are liberated from darkness. We are liberated from shame. We are free in Christ Jesus. Galatians 1-4 tells us it is through the blood of Jesus Christ that he freely gave that we can now be freed people. God gives Moses again this promise of liberation and says, hang to this. I'm gonna come through on this. I am faithful to my word. And friends, when we're wavering, we can look back to our freedom, our liberation, our deliverance through Jesus Christ. The next picture we get is, is a picture of redemption, the picture of redemption. Look at the end of verse six with me. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now, most often we we understand redemption as this idea of purchasing which is why Romans will say the wages, the payment of sin is death. And then Colossians will tell us that Jesus Christ nailed our debt to to the cross and and that we are now uh, redeemed people through Jesus purchasing us back to himself. And that's absolutely true. But the holistic picture from the scripture is so much more than just a purchase. You see, the word redeemed is this Hebrew word called goel. And goel has so much more to it than a simple purchase. It's about someone being a kinsman redeemer, a family defender, a family champion. And so we see it throughout the Old Testament. Like like, say you had a family member that was unjustly murdered. Your job as his family member was then to go in and provide justice. Or let's say that your cousin had a ton of debt he could never pay off. It is your job as his kinsman redeemer to go in, give your time, and give your money to free him from that debt as his redeemer. Or, or another example, maybe you can't make pay Payments on your land anymore, so you're going to lose your land. Well, a family member would come in, buy that land, gift it back to you, and let you freely live on that land as if it were your own and you owned it. Or most prominently, we see this idea of kinsman redeemer in the Book of Ruth, where if you're a widow with with a family and with responsibilities, but no way to provide for them, it is now the next of kin's job to come in and marry you, and provide for you, and protect you as your kinsman redeemer. So when God. God is saying, I will redeem you to Israel. It's not just about purchasing them from Egypt. It's absolutely about that, but it's also about God providing justice and paying off debts and giving a land and making Israel his people. Again, we remember back to Exodus 4 where God for the first time calls Israel, not a political nation, not a geographical nation, but the firstborn son of God. God is already weaving a tapestry of saying, I am your father, you are my children. I am your kinsman Redeemer, and this is true of us in the New Testament. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Listen to Galatians 4 with me. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is Jesus on display, our kinsman redeemer, no longer in, the, in, in darkness and in slavery to our sin and our flesh, but purchased back to him a part of his family forever. We'll hit that here in a second. But before we move on, here's my friend, Tony Merida, commenting on this passage. In your discouragement, Remember that you have a redeemer. Jesus, your kinsman protector, your family champion, has intervened into your misery. He has paid the price to relieve you from your greatest debt, your most desperate situation. He paid it with his own blood, his own life. And now we will sit at his table and we will live in his place forever. We are redeemed people because of Jesus. The next promise that Moses has given from God to cling to in the midst of all of this, to have assurance in the midst of all of this, is the promise of adoption. Look at verse 7 with me. God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will be your God and you will be my people. We we heard it in Galatians 4 already that when Jesus redeemed us and when God redeems Israel, it's so much more than deliverance. It's also adoption into his family. Romans 8 will kind of double down on this for us. Listen to Romans 8 with Me, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit, here it is, of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. This idea of adoption is so beautiful. I mean, think about adoption for a second with me. Adoption is one of the most assuring principles we have in the scripture. Say you're an orphan, you're in this orphanage. If a a couple comes in that's wanting to adopt, you you don't just say, I choose you, but rather the couple comes and says, I choose you. And I'm legally going to make you ours. And I'm lovingly going to make you ours. And I'm going to bestow our name upon you and all the rights and privileges that come with that name. And you can't do anything to lose your adoption. We're not going to give you up. We're not going to run away from you. You are now a part of our family forever. You are family to us. Not like family. You are family to us. That's the beauty of adoption that pictures the gospel. And the Bible will tell us that before the foundation of the world, before we ever sinned against God, before we ever, ever before we rebelled or walked away from him God set his sights upon us and said I will adopt you and I will make you mine and you will be mine forever and I will bestow upon you all the rights and the privileges of being in my family and you can't do anything to change that I'm not going anywhere I'm not going to leave you hanging out to dry I have adopted you and you are mine adoption as assurance I have an extended quote here from J.I. Packer from the book Knowing God on Adoption. But basically what he's trying to get at is our faith will instinctively grow in tandem with how deeply we understand this theology of adoption. Listen to J.I. Packer. You sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Meditate on this. Dwell on this. Think on this. You are a child of God. The final promise that Moses and the people of God are given in Exodus 6 is the promise of an inheritance. Look at verse 8 with me. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. The promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, and he kept with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all the way on down through the generations to Moses is still the same promise. I'm going to give you a land. I will dwell with you in that land. It will be a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'll provide you sustenance and protection, and I will forever be with you. This is your inheritance, Israel, as my children. This is what I'm giving to you, a physical land and a physical blessing. And then we bring this into the New Testament, and through Jesus Christ, we're redeemed and we're adopted into God's family, and now we are able. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. Only our inheritance is not a physical blessing in a physical place. Our inheritance is spiritual, where we're yearning for and looking forward to a day where we will be in the new heavens and the new earth and we'll be with God forever. And and all sad things will be untrue and diseases will be eradicated and pain will go away and hostility and division will cease to be. This is our inheritance and that inheritance is perfect and it's protected and it's unfading and it is sure Coming our way. So Moses and the people of God had to cling to that and say, even though we're in slavery, even though things are getting harder, not better, we know our inheritance is coming. And we too, Christian, when suffering and toil and turmoil comes our way, we know and we cling to and we receive assurance from the fact our inheritance is coming. So what do we do? We have liberation, redemption. Adoption, inheritance. How do we receive these covenantal promises of God? Second Corinthians 1 says this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Christ. That is why through him, through Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. We, as the people of God, receive these promises through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Which one do you need to cling to right now to find assurance? Maybe you have hidden sin or habitual sin that you just can't get over, can't get freed from, can't get past. Do you need to cling to whom the sun sets free is free indeed? Do you know that sin no longer holds you in its powerful grip, but Christ does? You are liberated through him. Cling to that assurance, Christian. Do you need to cling to the assurance that comes with redemption, that you are a part of God's people and nothing is going to change that Jesus has purchased you from the dominion of darkness to the dominion of his glorious light and nothing can pluck you from that. You are forever a part of his beautiful, expansive, majestic kingdom because you are redeemed by your kinsman, redeemer. Do you need to cling to this idea of adoption that all you've ever known is dysfunctional relationships, dysfunctional families, but God has brought you into his family and while there's warts and there's wounds, it's beautiful where forgiveness and grace and mercy is extended from brother to sister and sister. To brother, and ultimately, we know we have a perfect father who will not fail us, who will not let us down, who will not turn his back on us, and gives us nothing but good gifts. Do you need to cling to that promise? Do you need to cling to the promise of an inheritance where you're yearning all the more for the end of days, where you'll dwell with God forevermore as you look out on the world right now and you see how unspeakably fractured it is? Does it cause you to yearn for your inheritance through Christ? What can you cling to to find assurance now? Now, I'm going to finish up by reading the last four verses and just pointing out a couple of things here. Verses 9 through 13, read with me. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring them out of the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So in verses 10 through 13 there, here's what we've got. Moses gets rejected, and we're going to go back to verse nine and hit that. He gets rejected by the people of Israel, and then he goes back to God and says, Okay, God, they reject me. What am I supposed to do with this? And God just doubles down and charges Moses again. Here's your marching orders. Go to Pharaoh and I will deliver you. Just be obedient, Moses. I'm continuing to draw you into obedience. But what I want to point out there is verse nine. Moses goes and speaks all of the faithfulness, all of the promises of God to the people of Israel. And we get this. They did not listen because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Now, That text does not say they didn't receive the words of Moses because of their hard hearts. That text does not say they didn't receive the words of Moses because they wanted to be in Egypt. That text says they did not receive the words of Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. In other words, they were so weary, so burdened, so tired, so discouraged, so wounded and hurt, they could not possibly in that moment believe that God is good good and God is faithful, and his words are true, and his promises are true, that those things could not cut through the pain that the people of Israel were feeling. And so what do we do with that? Rather than me trying to recreate it, let me just quote Charles Spurgeon when he was commenting on this text. He says this, amongst all the reasons, however, that I have heard that with which I have the most sympathy is this one, That some cannot receive Christ because they are so full of anguish and are so crushed in spirit that they cannot find strength enough of mine to entertain a hope that by any possibility salvation can come to them. It is their sad case that I desire to speak. I think that I can speak to the case if God help me, for I have felt the same. I do remember when I could not believe even Jesus himself by reason of sore anguish and straightness of spirit. And therefore, as one who has worn the chains, I speak to those who are still in chains. I know the clanking of those fetters and what it is to feel the damp of the stone walls and to fear that there is no coming out of prison and to be so despairing that even when the emancipator turned the great key in the lock and set the door wide open, yet still my heart had made itself a dire cage. And I could not believe in the possibility of liberty. And therefore I sat bound in a dungeon of my own creation. Ah, there is no bastille so awful as to that which is built by despair and kept under the custody of a crushed spirit. Many are the desponding ones whose eyes fail so that they cannot look up or look out. To such I speak. May God speak through me by the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. I've been there. You've been there. We might all be there right now, despondent, full of anguish, full of pain. We think back to that episode of Band of Brothers. When the gates are wide open for the Jews, they don't go running out. At first, they're wondering, are you here to hurt us too? Are you here to further imprison us? And it took some time for them to realize, wow, these are are the people that are going to free us. And This is what God's drawing us all into right now. You see, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. For those of us who are humble, God has nothing but sympathy and comfort and love and tenderness and gentleness. And he has this towards those who are beat up, broken down, and waving the white flag. That's many of us today. If I'm being honest with you, that's where I feel today in my heart. What's the response to this? We must look to Christ because he's looking to us. Christ, the the lifter of the lowly, the comforter of the afflicted, the near, the brokenhearted, the one who is close to the crushed in spirit, the friend of the outcast and sinner, and the companion to the one who has rejected him. This is the Christ who has come to us with a heart of patience and love and endurance and gentleness. And he says, I'm with you in this. And we look to his work where he came down into our brokenness, down into the muck and the mire, down into the confusion and the anguish and he saved us up out of it and set our feet on solid ground. In times of discouragement, God brings us assurance that he has been faithful. His promises are true. He is absolutely good and we must believe that by looking to Christ, our Messiah, the one who is near the broken. He is with us. He was with Israel. So what's our response? Even when we're slow because we're so crushed, Christ is right there with us. Look to him. Remember, assurance is believing and resting in the fact that we belong to God. We are God's people, God's son, God's daughter, God's family forever. Christ has not abandoned us or left us. He is faithful to you. He is with you. If you're not a Christian, let me just invite you. If I could just say this, being a Christian is wonderful. There's no better thing to be in this entire world where we become family with God, fellow heirs with Christ. And we know our sin has been forgiven and paid for. We have right relationship with our Father who does nothing but good by us. If you're not a Christian, I just want to lovingly and warmly invite you into this beautiful, relationship with our Father through Jesus Christ. You just turn from your sin, confess your sin, and trust in Him. And if you, if you have tons of questions about that, let me remind you, we're going to have Alpha Ministries as a church starting this Wednesday. Sign up for that. We'll answer those questions, and we'll hope that you are going to be met with the absolute love of Christ, which is all that He has for you. Let's pray. Father, we love You, and we thank You that You are close to the downcast and the downtrodden because that's us. And so we need you. I pray you would show us your faithfulness and you would give us the courage to believe your words are true and cling to your promises to find assurance now in discouraging and trying times. This is who you are. This is what you do. And so we simply cry out, we need help. Please help. And you will. Christ's name. Amen.